0: And if you would turn in the copy of your scriptures to Exodus chapter 12, to identify or identity, the Oxford Dictionary defines as to establish or indicate who or what someone or something is. Cambridge Dictionary says to feel and say that you belong to a particular group of people. Actually, it seems to have become more difficult to identify the meaning of the word identify and to know what it actually means. Nevertheless, its usage in American conversation has surged over the last few years. I am who I choose to identify as. Well, I was making a purchase this week at a large retailer here in town, and the clerk at the catch register in the electronics department must have had at least 10 different buttons and labels and decals on her blue uh, vest that she was wearing and I asked her about one button in particular and I found out she was deadly serious about this identity stuff. A growing number of people reject any perceived identity limitations like being yo- young or being old or having male or female chromosomes and, and organs or possessing human or animal qualities the shape or the size or the color or the weight these are no longer the facts that we live with instead they are simply societal constraints they are social constructs that impede my freedom to be me they don't let me be who I who I want to be I am who I say I am not even perhaps who I want to be but certainly not who you may want me to be I am what I choose to be. So grows the mantra of many in our culture at this time. These recent chapters in Exodus show us this is not a new phenomenon. Pharaoh and his citizens also had an identity issue. Pharaoh and the Egyptians identified Pharaoh as God in the flesh. A supernatural deity. But the true God, Yahweh, didn't play games with vocabulary, psychology, and the pervading cultural trends of Egypt. Yahweh made some very strong promises to that man identifying as God. He made some very specific promises about the slaves of that deluded man. And he also made promises to those very slaves. One tumultuous night, the one who is truly God began to fulfill those promises. What did that amazing night look like when Yahweh kept his promises in the land of Egypt? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word. We know that it is living and powerful, it is perfect. And Father, you change lives by your word. And we know that it is spiritually discerned and without your spirit to, to work in our hearts, to, to even speak through my weak tongue, we would be we're left with nothing. So we ask you, Father, please take your word this morning, this narrative, this story about Moses and the people of Israel, and, and please speak to us, not just historically, but show us who you are. Reveal to us the greatness of our God as we've already looked at this morning. Lord show, Lord, show us who we are and bring us near to you. In your name we pray, amen. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance but the day of the Lord will come like a thief it was a night of fulfilled promises it was a disaster to Egypt Verse 29, And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Whether you were the richest or whether you were the poorest, or whether you're the most powerful or the weakest, whether you were royalty or criminal, city or country, in fact, whether you're human or animal, the messenger of death, Yahweh himself invaded the perceived privacy and safety of your own home and killed your firstborn. Every single family lost their firstborn to death that night. You couldn't call up a neighbor for help or solace because they too were drowning in the cruelty of death's sting. By midnight, everyone across the nation was wide awake. Can you imagine that? Imagine being surrounded by the piercing wail of mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, siblings crying out in agony. Never again would that precious firstborn walk into your room. Never again would they give you a hug or utter a word. A life was over for every, forever in every home of Egypt. Yahweh was keeping his promise to Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. God said, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Yahweh also was keeping his promise concerning the nation of Egypt. Exodus 11, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. You see, in desperate agony, the self deluded Pharaoh finally breaks down in humiliation. In the middle of the wretched night, verse 31 tells us he calls. For Moses and Aaron. And he said rise go out from among my people. Both you and the children of Israel and go serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said. And be gone and bless me also. You see disaster to Egypt was deliverance to Israel. They are commanded to go. And and I'm sure that Pharaoh never imagined hearing himself utter such defeat in three simple phrases. The first, go, both you and the children of Israel. That night, Yahweh kept another promise. This one he had made to Moses in Exodus 6, verse 1. He says, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them. Out of his land. Second phrase. Go serve Yahweh. Yahweh? Of whom Pharaoh had earlier said. In Exodus 5. Who is Yahweh? That I should obey his voice. To let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh. Nor will I let Israel go. But Yahweh had promised. In Exodus 7 verse 5. And the Egyptians shall know. That I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Another promise fulfilled that night. And the third phrase, as you have said. Twice repeated by Pharaoh. The broken Pharaoh does not dare to make any conditions for release at this point. Instead he completely acquiesces to everything exactly as Moses had demanded. The common people of the land are just as devastated. They also demand the Israelites get out as quickly as possible. Verse 33 says, And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they all said, We shall all be dead. And can't you imagine why? They have lost everything. All of their livestock are dead. All of the produce that has grown is dead. All of the trees are shredded. They have no economy. And now their firstborn child is dead. Don't you imagine they're thinking, if we don't get them out of here, what's next? The people are terrified. Another promise kept from Yahweh through Moses as he spoke to Pharaoh in Exodus 11. He said to Pharaoh, And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. In verse 34, we see the people were ready to go. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked him, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor. "...in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." Here is the fulfillment of another most unusual promise. This one was made to Moses when he was still but a hired sheep herder on the backside of a desert mountain. This was long before he even returned to Egypt. More than unusual, it's utterly preposterous that a tribe of slaves... With no army, no weapons, and no training, could plunder the most powerful nation on earth. Here is what Yahweh promised that obscure shepherd Moses, who had a resume of defeat and failure concerning the people he had once abandoned. God said to him, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go. That you shall not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor. Namely of her who dwells near her house. Articles of silver. Articles of gold and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons. And on your daughters. And so you shall plunder. The Egyptians. A promise keeping God. Then the children of Israel. Journeyed from Ramesses. To Sokoth about 600,000 men on foot besides children. Fellas, could you bring that map up? Ramses is located up there in the top where you see the word Goshen. That's about where Ramses probably was. The distance between Ramses and Sokoth was approximately 130 miles. Sokoth is down there in the middle. I probably couldn't jump there and touch it. But you know where it's at. 120 miles from Goshen or Ramses down to Sokoth. The exact site of Sokoth is actually not confirmed. If indeed this is the location of Sokoth, as the map points out, this was not a rest stop. But it was a rendezvous point. In that location. There were many copper and turquoise mines. That the Egyptians were working at that very time. Who worked those mines? The Hebrew slaves. So as they poured out of Goshen and Ramses. To head on their journey. Their exodus journey. They gathered up probably thousands of fellow slaves. That were working the mines there in Succoth. Which is one of the reasons they went down that direction. At Succoth the rest of their fellow Israelite slaves joined in the exodus out of Egypt. The number 600,000 men besides children. It's estimated to represent at least 2 million men, women and children. Jacob had entered into Egypt only a few centuries earlier with how many people? 70 people. By the blessing of God, that number exploded to a staggering about 28,000, 29,000 times more people. Another promise fulfilled. This one, more ancient, it was given to Abraham in Genesis 22. Blessing, I will bless you, God said. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. Did that ever happen? And as they leave, it says in verse 30, a mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. This mixed multitude may have been those Egyptians who we read about in Exodus chapter 9. It says there that those who feared the word of the Lord who were among the servants of Pharaoh. Some actually began to see what was happening. And would heed the warnings. And we go on. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough. Which they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened. Because they were driven out of Egypt. And could not wait. Nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Yahweh again makes good on a promise. Exodus 6.6. 6, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt. And I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And with great judgments. But this immediate deliverance that we see right here coincided with the fulfillment of a very gradual deliverance. Centuries. Verse 40. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years on that very same day it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt and we're going to stop here for a moment at these two verses and it may seem a little bit unusual often little is made of this 430 years but part of our work in, in trying to equip this church to be ready is, is how do we answer some of the things that may seem like discrepancies in scripture and this is one of those things that sometimes is raised Often little is made of this 430 years. With a quick read, it appears that the Israelites suffered in slavery for 430 years in Egypt. But when you take into consideration verses such as Genesis 15, 13, you might want to jot that down, Acts 7, verse 6, and Galatians 3, 16 through 17, which refer to this period, and then you consider the lifespan of Abraham, then his son Isaac, then Jacob, and then Joseph, and the places that they lived, you begin to see that such a surface understanding of 430 years of slavery in Egypt doesn't really, really fit God's overall story of Genesis and Exodus. Now we know that the original autograph of the scriptures, the original documents written by the holy men of God, as Second Peter says, who were moved by the Holy Spirit, that these are without error and they do not contradict each other. At the same time, men like myself and others sometimes come to a point in scripture where we disagree as to what God has specifically said. The scriptures are perfect, but my understanding is not. I want you to know I have attempted to understand this 430 years prayerful meditation meditation. Comparison with other relevant scriptures. Speaking with several brothers and other pastors. Who have also sought input from even some of their professors. As well as reading several written sources. Now I don't say that to try to convince you that I've got it. So listen to me. But I do want you to know that I didn't bring this up without trying to put sincere effort. The simplest way to explain A consistent biblical interpretation of 430 years mentioned seemed to be summed up here in the Treasury of Scriptural Knowledge. It's It's a resource book and it reads, the Samaritan Pentateuch reads, now the sojourning of the children of Israel and their fathers in the land of Canaan and in the land of Egypt was 430 years. The Alexandrian copy of the Septuagint has that same reading. And the same statement is made by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.17, who reckons from the promise made to Abraham to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai was 430 years. That these three witnesses have the truth, the chronology itself proves. For it is the period from Abram's entry into Canaan, to the exodus is exactly 430 years. Thus from Abraham's entrance into the promised land. To the birth of Isaac was 25 years. Isaac was 60 at the birth of Jacob. And Jacob was 130 at his going into Egypt. 215 years. Where he and his children continued 215 years more. Making the whole 430. Now, some of you might think. Well, okay, move on. And it might seem confusing. But in other words, the 430 years here represent the span of time from when Abram was called by God out of Ur and entered the land of Canaan until when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai at the beginning of Exodus. During this span, we know. We know there were times of great slavery and suffering as we read. But we also know there were years of favor where Jacob And Joseph were looked upon with great respect. The Apostle Paul stated it this way. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds as many but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say that the law which was 430 years later from when the promise was made cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect now if you have further questions or concerns please do not hesitate to talk with me afterwards I would welcome the opportunity to discuss it and also share some of the sources that led to this conclusion But now we're going to move on now We move past the promises here and we come to the Passover, the requirements of Passover. Verse 42, it is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten, and you shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and let him come near and keep it and he shall be as a native of the land for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law, very important, one law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. We're gonna condense this a bit. What is it that Yahweh is giving instruction about to Moses and Aaron here? It says it's a night of solemn, serious observance. To who? It is to be made To Yahweh, kept for Yahweh, the Lord. Why? Because Yahweh delivered us out of the land of Egypt. And who is to keep it? It is to be observed by all the people of Israel. How long? Throughout their generations. Instead of simply looking back and trying to recall something that had happened, the first Passover would be memorialized by participating in the meal that was eaten that night. The Passover meal was to be a lasting ordinance throughout their generations. So we see Passover then is an ordinance. It is something that is given specific directions, allowances and prohib- prohibitions by God. You see it's not like Christmas celebration. In its basic form, followers of Christ celebrate Christmas centered around the Son of God who came to earth in human form. Praise God. Yet that being said, on Christmas Eve, some of us read Luke 2 and some read Matthew 1 and some read them both. Some sing a cappella carols to neighbors And others use beautiful instruments around the fireplace. Some of us have greenery everywhere with bright multicolored lights. Some use only white lights. Some open gifts on Christmas Eve. A few wait until January 6th. And some choose not to exchange gifts. Some have Christmas trees. Others detest Christmas trees. Some participate with an advent candle in their home with the lighting of these four special candles. Others have an Advent Christmas calendar with a new verse and a little symbolic gift for each day of the month until the December 25th. Some eat turkey and dressing. Some eat ham. Some of you eat Mexican manicotti on Christmas dinner. That's us. <laughs> that is not so with Passover. It contains very specific components. Uniformity and consistency are demanded. The requirements of that first actual Passover are contained in the first part of Exodus 12. You see how important this is. If you wanted to see your firstborn child alive tomorrow morning, you kept these instructions to a T. Pick a lamb on the 10th day. Of the first month. A lamb that was one year old. And without blemish. It could either be a sheep or a goat. One lamb per household. Consider the size of your household. You may share with a neighbor. Kill that lamb. At twilight. On the fourteenth day. Of the first month. And the most crucial element. What we even spoke about. and, and, And celebrated this morning. The first Passover, put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts and lintel of your house where it is eaten. Now let me read that from Exodus 12, verse 22 and 23. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. Have you ever thought about how odd that really seems? When you look about what has happened so far in the plagues, surely if God could distinguish between the Egyptians and his own people During plagues like killer hail, frogs, locusts, and even light and darkness for three days. That devastated Egypt, but never touched his own people. Then surely he must be able to distinguish who are his own people when he kills the firstborn. Why even bother with this sophisticated and detailed animal butchery and blood? Death came to every home in Goshen and Egypt that night. Egyptian and Israelite. However, Yahweh provided a substitute death in the Lamb that would satisfy His wrath that night. This substitute death of the Lamb was the shadow of our substitute Jesus Christ. He would die in our place, paying the debt of our sin and sparing us to eternal life. A few more details meal prep and cleanup. You roast the lamb with its legs and an entrail. Do not boil with water, and then you eat it. If anything is left over, burn it before morning. Dinner attire, it's included here. Belt on your waist. Sandals on your feet and staff in your hand. Table manners, forget it. Eat it in haste. It is not to be slowly enjoyed and savored. Eat it in haste. Then in these verses this morning, 43 to 49, Yahweh adds these specific details. We'll begin with the positive. Verse 46, in one house it shall be eaten. And verse 47, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. The negative, you shall not carry any of the flesh outside that house, nor shall you break one of its bones. And here we have another type foreshadowing the crucified body. The crucified body of our tortured, beaten, crucified Savior. And in spite of suffering the most brutal, brutal death wickedness had ever devised, not a single bone of Christ was broken. Our Passover lamb. Amazing, miraculous. And still, we're going to bore down into this. Yahweh gives a very specific and strong emphasis on one particular requirement for Passover. Notice what that is. It is a requirement to be continued for generations to come. This decree from Yahweh, again the negatives, the no's or the nots, no foreigner shall eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. No uncircumcised person shall eat it. Ultimately, that's what it came down to. The positives, slaves and servants bought for money may eat of it when they have been circumcised. A stranger dwelling with Israel may come near and keep it, eat of it. After all his males have been circumcised circumcision circumcision it was the outward physical sign demanded by God from Abraham as a sign of Abraham's place in God's covenant every male member of Abraham's family that would ever exist was to be circumcised by this they would be set apart for the unique relationship Abraham had by faith With his creator God. Circumcision is also stated here by Yahweh. As an absolute requirement. To participate in the Passover celebration of Israel. But. But God would speak of another new covenant. A new covenant for his people. Through his prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah. And the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews quotes this new covenant Jeremiah described. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6. But now he, speaking of Jesus Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, and now the writer of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That's where we are in Exodus. Because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more." End of quote. But the writer goes on. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We move on up. As the new covenant gospel of Jesus Christ began to grow and spread in the early days of the church, Questions and tensions arose. Who and who is not to be a part of this new gospel blessing? Has God's kingdom suddenly embraced not only Jews, but but Gentiles also? And the really big question what now are the requirements for being a member of God's kingdom? What now are the requirements for being a member of God's kingdom? Things have changed dramatically. This all came to a head when the leaders of the early church met in Jerusalem to attempt to answer these new and very thorny questions. Acts chapter 15. I want to read to you what happened there. And a certain man came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria describing the conversion of the Gentiles and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all things that God had done with them. But... Some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us, That by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God who knows the heart. Acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And made no distinction between us and them. Purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore. Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples. Which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which was fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. But that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So it boiled down to a few things, but it did not boil down to circumcision. It did not come down to keeping all the laws and regulations of Moses what we see here even as Peter speaks it is a matter of the heart it is a matter of faith things were radically changed so where does that tie us in here well you see in the midst of trailblazing this path of the gospel Paul clarifies what God really sees as circumcision and being Jewish we want to be part of this kingdom we want to be part of his people How do we do that? We saw circumcision was a must in Exodus. Where do we go now? Romans chapter 2, verse 25 through 29, Paul writes this, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor, a breaker of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Paul is bringing something beautiful and very new. But he is a Jew. "...who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God." So I go back to the beginning, the introduction where I talked about self-identity. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Who is among the people of God? Verse 1, "...and Jesus answered again and spoke to them again by parables." And said the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. Who arranged a marriage for his son. And sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Again he sent out other servants saying. Tell those who are invited. See I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle. They're killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it. And they went their ways. One to his own farm and another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, and he destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding." So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, look at this, both good and bad. Praise God. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, listen carefully. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot. Take him away. Cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. You cannot get away with identifying as one of the wedding guests. You cannot be a part of the wedding in the kingdom No matter what you profess How you appear How you live and least of all your own personal opinion About who you are In the wedding parable You only remain in the wedding And escape destruction If the king has given you wedding apparel And an invitation Whether you think you are a guest to the wedding Or identify as a guest to the wedding Is worthless It has no bearing on your status So how do I get into the wedding and escape out of darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. How can I be saved? That is the question. You see, all of us have had identity problems at some point. If you would attempt to share the gospel with very many people, you will find out all men have this identity problem. They think they're good enough, or they think they're so bad that God would never save them, or they don't care, or they don't understand that they were created in the image of God, but their identity is messed up. And they claim this and they claim that. So what does Jesus say? How does Jesus, the Son of God, who came to save His lost children, answer that question? John 1, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God, born of the will of God. John three three. Jesus answered and said to him, Nicodemus, a, a very um, probably well highly respected Pharisee. Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Being born again is essential. John three sixteen, as Brad read this morning. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but the world might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned. Promise. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Promise. John 5, 24. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. Acts 3.19, this is from Peter. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Paul in Ephesians 2 for by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20 Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God for He, God, made Him who knew no sin, Jesus to be sin for us. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. There may be a hundred ways to celebrate Christmas. But there is only one way to celebrate the Passover. There may be a hundred ways to look and sound spiritual. Even Christian. But there is only one way to enter into the kingdom of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and King. And turn from your sin. And I, I say that this morning because I know there are some here who are in that predicament. You, you tend to want to identify, you, you, you come to all the right things, you, you, you understand the lingo, but you don't have the wedding garment. And you see, it's not me who said, This will happen to you. Jesus said, You shall be in outer darkness. gnashing of teeth and pain and agony for eternity but with that wedding garment on you celebrate with the Lamb of God the Son of God the King of Kings and all of the brothers and sisters that love him for eternity. You must have that wedding garment. (laughs) Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron so they did. The last two verses I gave the heading, the promiser and his people. You see, there's a very special intimacy that springs up in these final two verses. All that the promiser and his people have been through for the last several days, weeks, years, even centuries, it all suddenly begins to merge. It begins to merge into this majestic river of the glory and faithfulness of Yahweh. Yahweh. And that river is spilling onto his humbled and obedient children. They have responded in love. Jesus said this, who has my, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What do we read in verse 50? Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded. So they did. And the final verse, And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. Faithfulness to his people. What a God. He is faithful to his word, to his promises. But he's not some politically correct mamby-pamby God up there in the heavens. His promises are true whether you're Pharaoh or whether you're Moses. And they will come. They will come. Now he is leading them by the hand out of the land of bondage toward the land he promised. The fulfillment of one more promise to end this morning. Exodus 6 verse 7. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am Yahweh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is so much in this portion of scripture. And far more than I brought to the surface. And, and Father, we desire to know you. Help us to understand the depth, the truth that you have laid out before us in your word. We praise you the Moses was a man, a real man, flesh and blood like us. And yet you took took him, discouraged and defeated from the backside of that mountain and brought him to this glorious day as he and the people of Israel escape from the bondage of Egypt. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you have given us escape, that you have given us deliverance through our Moses, through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only a great man, but the great God-man who himself could pay for our sin by his blood. Lord, we owe you everything. May we walk faithfully this week. May we share you every opportunity we can. May we enjoy your presence. Lord, may we repent and follow you. In your name we pray, amen.